This episode of Nocturne is brought to you with the support of Il Morso. Il Morso makes bite-sized organic coffee bars. It's coffee you can eat. They're loaded with flavor and the caffeine of a single espresso. I had an Americano bite the other day instead of a cup of coffee, and it was the perfect afternoon pick-me-up. For you night owls who rely on caffeine, try eating your coffee instead of drinking it. Go to ilmorso.com. That's I-L-M-O-R-S-O.com and enter the promo code Nocturne for $10 off a month's supply. You can also find a link at our website. You're listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. It's the death and destruction beat. I'm there at three in the morning when something blows up, when a natural disaster occurs, so that I can get people during the day prepared for what has happened. That's Jade Walker. I am the overnight editor of the Huffington Post formerly the overnight editor for the New York Times, the Associated Press, and Yahoo News. We spoke at midnight her time. I really hate the daytime. I hate the sunlight. When I'm walking down the street, I instinctively go to the shady side. My friends actually joked that I probably ran into a vampire sometime in college, and it just didn't finish, like, the whole drinking process. So uh, I got the, the night part, but I didn't get any of the good, fun immortality. Lest you're unclear about how Jade feels about the sun and everything else about daytime. Oh my god, it's so bright and evil and hot and glaring and, oh, it's just like, it's so much louder during the day and it's terrible. (laughs) Like, I actually dread summertime's coming for so many reasons, but like, just the fact that the sun is going to be so oppressive. I hate it. I can tell you that most of my neighbors have no idea who I am, have never seen me in daylight hours. They only catch glimpses of me like once or twice a year when I'm putting out Halloween decorations or Christmas decorations. I do have a great social life, have friends. I'm just this vampire who only comes out at night. Jay discovered her vampire nature early on, and it came in handy. When I was a senior in high school, I was the editor-in-chief of my school paper, and then I got an internship at the local newspaper, and one of the first things they had me do was spend Friday nights all night long riding with the fire department, going out to all their calls. And as soon as I switched to that schedule, I just knew that's what I should be biologically living in. Some people spend years fighting their body's natural rhythms, forcing themselves to fit into society's daytime routines. Luckily for Jade, her ride-alongs with the fire department exposed a career path she might never have discovered. Well, it's definitely been my calling. I've been doing it for 25 years now. I started out in print newspapers, and then I switched to the online media in about 1997, did a bunch of freelancing, and then in the 2000s, I worked as the overnight editor for the New York Times, the Associated Press, Yahoo News, and now... Uh, the Huffington Post. I work from nine at night till seven in the morning, Sunday through Thursday. So I run the whole website at about midnight. Everybody else goes home and they transfer the website to me. And then it's my job to make sure that all breaking news is covered 
through either writing the stories, using wire services, or having uh, writers around the world pen the stories and then I edit them and post them online. And then of course, socialing those stories and getting them out on the various social media networks. If anything is happening overnight, that's generally when I'm covering it and things that are, are catching my eye and I have to try and provide that information for readers for the morning. And as well for our, you know, overnight, I get a lot of international readers. You have to be prepared for everything because you're literally alone. So, you know, whereas one person might cover just features or someone might just be on the photo desk or that you're just a social media person, I have to do all of those jobs and, and try to do them as well as I can at the same time. The job of night editor is not a job for the masses. Right now, I am the only overnight editor at the Huffington Post. There is nobody but me, and then I have some writers throughout the world that I work with. When I worked at the Times, there were uh, two overnight editors. We would each work four-day weeks and cross over on one day. But it, over time, I found that I was there for four years, and during those four years, I went through three other overnight editors because they mostly didn't last for more than six months to a year, whereas I always lasted. Working nights does not mean stopping at midnight, but starting at midnight. So one of the things I would try to tell my bosses when you get another editor is hire a vampire. Hire someone who actually likes being up at night and can handle the news that happens at that time. This was something that I'd never considered. The news at night has its own distinctive flavor, and it's not for the faint of heart. What I often do to describe my job is that it's the death and destruction beat. During the day, you're dealing with the elections and you're dealing with, you know, regular daytime news. At night, most of the things that happen are plane crashes, earthquakes, war, bombings, terrorist attacks. So it's the, the darker side of things that are happening. But America's sleeping, so they don't know it's happening. And so I need to make sure that I take all that news and put it online so that when they wake up in the morning and they grab their phone or hop online, they have it all ready for them so that they know what's been happening in the world while they were sleeping. In this hyper-connected world, we all expect to know what major things happened while we were asleep. Jade spends her nights deciding which news stories we need to wake up to. The execution of Saddam Hussein was a big one. Catching bin Laden was a big one. Unfortunately, in the past few years, I've dealt with a lot of shootings, mass shootings. Prior to that, in the, in the early aughts, I dealt with a lot of Mideast bombings. There were times where you couldn't go to a bus stop or a cafe in Jerusalem without something blowing up. When just recently, um, when the attacks in Brussels were happening, again, it's three o'clock in the morning, it's been a really quiet night. I'm thinking this is, you know, one of the rare moments where I can focus on other writing. And next thing you know, they're blowing up subway stations and, and airports. So then I push aside everything else and I refocus on that. And now the next thing I know is I'm just dealing with terrorism for the next few hours. I mean, the great thing about my job is there is never a day where I know what's going to happen or everything is happening the same every single day. It's always something new. It's always something different. You know, I'll have 
a quiet night. I mean, even 9-11, that was a quiet night. I had just come back from vacation. It was my first night back. It was very quiet. And just as I'm about to leave, one of the worst terrorist attacks have ever happened. I was at the New York Times website. I had just finished a 10-hour shift. I was about to get off of work at 9 a.m., and the first planes hit like 8.45. So I saw the plane go into the towers on TV and immediately started writing the story and putting the information online, making phone calls, contacting staff, trying to get a hold of people, calling the mayor's office, calling the police department, getting that information online. Then our website went down from the massive amount of traffic. So I was trying to get the tech support to get it back online in any form. The day shift was just starting to come in. And in fact, half of them couldn't get in for the coverage because of the the attacks. So I just kept working, continued to work on the front page, getting the information out with my colleagues, and then finally ended up sleeping on the floor there because they had closed the bridges and tunnels to the outer boroughs. I couldn't get home. Sometimes the death and destruction is close to home and clearly visible, like with 9-11. But a lot of Jade's job involves locating the news. One of the things that I have to do is watch for breaking news. Obviously, the wires will send breaking news alerts and let me know that things are happening. But social media provides that same service on a more ground level. So if I see people who are reporting they're at a concert or at a movie theater and suddenly there are shots fired, I can start preparing a story with that information. At the same time, I'm contacting police departments and hospitals and and checking out the local media outlets to see what they're reporting and figuring out the details of what's actually breaking while I'm able to create my own story. Jade uses multiple apps to monitor and scour social media for what's happening every second of the night. I have one dedicated just to weather. And so if there's a hurricane or tornado season going on, I have it set up so that I can follow what's happening in those areas. If I was dealing with, you know, the riots in Ferguson, I'll create a list of the people who are there on the ground and activists and local media and follow that information so that I know perhaps when the protests become a little more violent. We also have programs like Data Miner that'll do those kinds of searches for us and then send us emails, heads up, I just got four tweets from four different people that there is a shooting in a movie theater during Batman. So now I know something is happening in Colorado a thousand miles from my house. I can start preparing for that. Did you catch that? She said her house. When I picture a news outlet like the Huffington Post or the New York Times, I think of people bustling around, stressed out and yelling and spilling coffee. But that's not Jade's world. I work solely from home. Usually about once or twice a year, I'll head back to the city and, you know, meet my coworkers. I, I, I still haven't met my boss. I mean, Ariana and I have spoken in email and on phone, but four and a half years I've been working at the Huffington Post, she and I have never actually physically met. And when I worked at the New York Times, I would literally sit in an empty building by myself. I'd go into work, and then my only real interactions with people were either the delivery guy who would deliver my dinner at two in the morning, 
or the correspondents overseas who I'd be working with. But it really seemed silly to sit in an empty building when I could just as easily do the exact same job anywhere in the world. Why not do it from home? So in later jobs, that's what I did. So while Jade is handling all the news that happens in the world at night on her own for the Huffington Post, she's sitting in a small, dimly lit room in her house. I work in my home office. I work almost entirely in darkness. I have one of those strings of Christmas lights that people hang up. I have that across my windows. And then it's just that and the computer light. It's the only light I work by. She said it before, she'll say it again. I don't like light. I like it dark. It's comforting and I just don't like the sun. It's just, no. (laughs) The sun is just so oppressive and, and evil and cruel and harsh. And at least this light I can control. I mean, an angel light, these Christmas lights are very soft. They're very vanilla. It's quite something to think about. One woman releasing all the news for a major news outlet from a room lit with Christmas lights. It's even more striking when you realize that Jade is not operating near anything remotely like a news hub. We live in the southwestern part of New Hampshire, right on the border of Massachusetts and Vermont, a very rural area. In New York, obviously, I'd hear all the city sounds, police sirens and subways, and I loved that. But here in New Hampshire, oh, it is so great. It's mostly blessed silence. It's just real silence. Where at five in the morning, I'm hearing the the crickets and the frogs, things creeping out in the night. The only time I really notice the world is when the birds start chirping or nature wakes up. Or in the wintertime, like three in the morning when there's a good snowstorm, I'll hear the snowplow guys come by. And it's cool because it's like the two of us are the only ones awake in the world. The rest of the world is sleeping, but we're working and we're keeping things running. He's my kindred. (laughs) There are some unforeseen benefits to running the night news from a little house far away from the media epicenter. Just you and the snowplow guy. Okay, so when Hurricane Sandy hit New York, they had obviously pushed the website to New Hampshire. And so I was dealing with that. I had a, a green editor, a wonderful woman named Joe, who was working from her parents' house in Connecticut. While we were, the two of us, just the two of us, were covering this big storm, I'm running the front page, she's running the live blog, the servers that run the Huffington Post got flooded. And then the backup servers got flooded, and the site went completely down. So we have what's called a bat phone which we call for our tech support and beg and plead and and try to get the site back up because we have all this information, but we can't put it out. So for like a good hour, we were solely working on Facebook, putting out notices and live blogs and updates on Facebook and on Twitter from New Hampshire and from Connecticut because all of our information was underwater. (laughs) So that that was a bit tough. I mean, it actually works out well that I live here rather than in the city because they had sort of a backup. You know, if there's ever a massive earthquake on the West Coast, they can just shift all of the information to the East Coast and we can handle that. She can handle it, but the oddness of the situation is not lost on Jade. 
And there is a, a strange dichotomy of sitting in this quiet New Hampshire house with my cats and my dog as company, my husband sleeping, and my tea by my side. And then I'm looking at death and destruction and dealing with those stories and dealing with that imagery and videos. And yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why I like it so quiet and dark is that I have this sort of comfort zone while I'm dealing with all of this kind of news. That comfort zone is really important. As you can imagine, being immersed in the hardcore details of war, natural disasters, and random violence can take a pretty big toll. After 9-11, I was in New York breaking that story for the New York Times, and I did not cry for like a year after dealing with that story because I was so focused on doing my job and getting the news out to people that I didn't really like process what had actually happened. And then a year later, um, I got off of work and I went to one of the memorials for the fire departments. And one of the things they do is they ring a bell at the end of the memorial for the firefighters in that particular department who had died. And the next thing I know, I was just bawling, just bawling. And I mean, I, because I lived in Brooklyn, I passed ground zero every single day. You couldn't not deal with this empty hole in the sky. You could not deal with all the pictures of the missing that were plastered throughout the city. But I was so focused on working and making sure people knew what was happening that I didn't really process the emotion of what I was losing. There are actual therapists out there specifically for journalists who deal with this, believe it or not, because it can be traumatizing. You know, even things like covering a tornado in your neighborhood. If you're out there every day dealing with that and smelling the smells and, and watching people struggle and seeing their homes destroyed, you can't not be affected by it even as you're trying to remain an objective observer. You take some of that home with you, even if it means putting it aside for while you're working. I have the luxury of working from home and so when I finish my night, I turn to my animals for affection. <laughs> we have five cats and we have a dog, a big 90 pound dog. The dog actually sleeps right behind my chair at all times. So whenever I need a break, I can literally just turn around in my chair and he's right there for me to rub his belly. And that just takes my eyes away from the screen, brings me back to the present. And he's, you know, a dog, so they love you unconditionally and give you that. I have a cat that sleeps behind my head on the top of my chair. So there's always this fuzzy warmth around me. And if whenever I want, I can lean up and give her loving. My youngest cat shall come by. I lift her up. I put her on my chest. She falls asleep. And I continue to, like, lean back in my chair and work around her body. <laughs> I have a rule inside my head that if any cat or dog pops up next to me demanding affection, I have to stop what I do and give it to them. Not just because I love them, but because it helps me. It helps ground me, it helps get me back to the present and not so focused on what's happening thousands of miles away. My husband gives me a hug every day the minute he walks downstairs. He'll come down in the morning with crazy, crazy hair and he can pretty much just look at me and feel the tension in my shoulders or see the lines on my face and know if I've had a good night or if it's been particularly rough. And sometimes 
what he'll do is just hold me and let me take a breath, which I haven't been doing for hours. And sometimes he'll sit down and I'll take five minutes and tell him what's happening. And just the very act of telling him takes a weight off of my shoulders. I can get back to work and I feel refreshed and I'm refocused again. And then there is the ultimate stress therapy. I love to bake for people. (laughs) You know, I try to find outlets that are kind and comforting and loving to sort of work through all of that darkness. I love pie. You can't eat pie and not be happy. In addition to taking care of herself, Jade puts a lot of care into not traumatizing the readers. She works hard to figure out how to present the news that people will wake up to so they don't want to crawl right back into bed. When you're dealing with death and destruction news, you want to tell people what's really happening, but you don't want to sensationalize things. And it's a fine line to walk when you're dealing with, for example, what's happened recently, there were airstrikes in Syria and they hit a hospital. So you want to show pictures of what the hospital looks like. And so I go through dozens and dozens of pictures on social media and from our wire photographers looking for the photos that are going to show the carnage, but perhaps not the body parts or the gigantic piles of blood. I want people to see these images and understand what's happening and feel empathy for the people involved, but not be so grossed out that they just look away and move on with their lives. The goal of being in the press is that you hold power accountable and you keep the public informed of what's going on in the world so that they can make better decisions. I don't need to tell you what to think. I just need to tell you what's happening. It's tempting to see print newspapers as the serious final word on what's happening in the news. But according to Jade, that's really an outdated way of looking at things. When I worked at The Times, I loved print, but I worked on the digital side. And so I'd get off of work and I'd get on the subway and I'd see all these people reading the print paper. And while I appreciated that as someone who works in the news, the other side of me was wanting to go up to them and saying, that's good, but here's what's happened since then. So the stuff that you're reading in the paper is important and it is a historical record and often has a lot of great influence and value. But if you really want to stay up to date on what's happening in the world, the online world provides that. So between the cutting edge immediacy of online news and the ability to be swaddled in cats while she works, Jade is pretty much in professional heaven. When you throw in the fact that she works at night, it really can't get any better for her. Oh, there are so many things I love about working at night. I love that there are very few bosses. (laughs) I am incredibly independent, and while I have the ability to work with teams, I like running things very much, and at night, I have that power. Um, I also love the quiet. When you work in a newsroom during the day, you're dealing with people yelling across the room and banging keys and phones ringing, And you learn to work in that environment of noise, and I have, but at night it's quiet. I can focus on the writing. I can really create um, a story without distraction. And I also like being able to do a job where the rest of the world is sleeping, and when they wake up, everything is there for them. 
I mean, if I'm not up and working, there is no coverage. So if a hurricane comes and hits New Orleans and nobody's up to cover it, did it really happen? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, it actually did. It's just nobody's covering it. So someone has to be there. It's like, I mean, I call it the firehouse shift. There are some nights where you're just hanging out in the firehouse and you're training and you're, you know, cleaning things. And then the alarm goes off and you're there for when that alarm goes off. I'm there at three in the morning when something blows up, when a natural disaster occurs, so that I can get people during the day prepared for what has happened. I provide that service. She and a very small group of others like her. I actually run a newsletter, a mailing list for for overnight editors. They're all over the world. There's about 20 of us throughout the world. Um, I'm sure there are more, but these are the 20 that we have found. And we share jobs and we talk about, you know, new ways to fall asleep and block out the world when we have to. It's kind of a, a lifestyle that most people just don't get. Sometimes it can be kind of frustrating when the rest of the world lives one way and you just don't. You know, you've got to do your own thing. And so when you actually run across someone who gets you and who lives the same way, it's a real treat. Jade is married to a man who does not live the same way she does. She refers to him as a daywalker. They've made the schedule work at home by overlapping around dinner and breakfast times. But traveling is a rare opportunity to spend more time together. Even while away from work, though, Jade is drawn to the gritty meat of life and to the things that most people aren't seeing. Things that, on the surface, might seem strange or morbid. She and her husband seek them out together. We like to go through cemeteries and just look at the stones and think of the history that's involved and tell stories about them. This is actually another part of Jade's job, writing obituaries. I love writing obituaries. It is a great passion of mine. I'm a founding member of the Society of Professional Obituary Writers. These are the people who really tell the history of communities. After 9-11, one of the greatest things the New York Times did was to create what was called Portraits of Grief, where they wrote short obituaries of all of the people who had died in the towers and at the Pentagon and in Pennsylvania. And they were very short. They were only a couple of paragraphs. But I had to post them all online. And I had this book, we call it the Book of Death, on my desk. And it listed all the names and, you know, next of kin and where they worked and where they were when they died. And, you know, we'd be crossing them off as we go. And it was something that really kept you grounded. Their stories, they were defining the last word on people's lives. So even though it seems like that's just another offshoot of my death and destruction world, death is really only one line of an obit. The rest of the story is the really fascinating and interesting things people have done with their lives. And I always find them very inspiring. I always learn something interesting about people when I write their obit that is more than just here the jobs they worked or the people they were married to or the awards that they've won. You know, you always end up finding out the details of who liked to bake pie and who was really good at rolling their R's and, you know, who, just like me, would much rather be up at night and never up during the day. I mean, there's always these details that make people really interesting. Most people don't sit in a dark room and document bad news. 
just as most don't seek out the obituaries. In fact, some of us actively avoid those things because they represent a part of life that's scary and unpredictable. So it can be a little jarring when you come across someone who openly embraces that darkness. Until you realize that there's a whole other world to be found in the spaces between the death and destruction and endings, there's something to be said for not looking away. I don't consider the darkness evil or morbid. To me, that is life. That is joy. That is comfort. That's where life happens, is in the darkness. You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. You can find more information about the beautiful music in this episode at nocturnepodcast.org. And if you like what you hear, please rate us and write a review on iTunes. Also, please support Nocturne on Patreon or PayPal. You can find easy links to do that at our website. Thanks to Il Morso for their support of Nocturne. Find their scrumptious coffee bites at ilmorso.com and use promo code Nocturne. If you listen to Nocturne on most podcast players, you don't get to see the amazing original art that Robin Galante makes for each episode. The images she creates add a whole layer to each story. They're beautiful and evocative and eerie. You should definitely check them out at nocturnepodcast.org. And that website, it was created and is maintained by Eric Peterson, who I can't thank enough for all of his help and support. Nocturne is a proud founding member of The Herd, a collective of fantastic storytelling podcasts from around North America. In her latest episode of How to Be a Girl, Marlo Mack tells the story of fighting to keep a bathroom bill out of her home state. Any parent who thought their child had been in the girls' restroom with my daughter could sue the school for $2,500, plus monetary damages for all the, quote, psychological, emotional, and physical harm suffered end quote, by their child from having been in a bathroom with a child like mine. Check out all the shows at theherdradio.com. That's H-E-A-R-D. Thanks for listening.